Our reading today is from 1 Corinthians, chapter 12, verse 27, to chapter 13, verse 13. Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is part of it. And God has placed in the church, first of all, apostles, second, prophets, third, teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, of helping, of guidance, and of different kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all have gifts of healing? Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? Now eagerly desire the greater gifts. And yet I will show you the most excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all the mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, what in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. This is God's word. If we've not met, let me have my welcome. My name's Matt, uh, Matt Fuller, one of the uh, pastors here. It'd be lovely to meet you afterwards. But as we begin, uh, a couple of months actually, in this chapter of 1 Corinthians 13, uh, let's pray. Let's pray together. Our great God and Father, we've sung already that there, there is no greater love than that of Jesus Christ for his people. And we want to be those who understand that deeply, know that deeply in our heads and in our hearts, are, are transformed by that love, and so live it out. Please do that work amongst us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, some will know, uh, last week at um, 
one of the, the dinners we had here in church, one of the guest dinners. Uh, uh, lots of people who wouldn't be Christians are invited and came along. One of the questions I gave a talk, and one of the questions I was asked publicly afterwards was, um, can you consider whether Christianity is true without looking at Jesus? That was the gist of it. Can you consider whether Christianity is true without actually looking at Jesus? Uh, well, you think on your feet. Uh, and I think I said, essentially, no and yes. Um, which is always, when you're thinking things through, is always a pretty safe bet, because you, you, you're going to be covered that way. It buys you a little bit of time. Uh, so you think, no and yes. Okay. Uh, well, no, no, you can't do that. You can't, you, it's just impossible for you to do that. It's about him. Christianity is about him, Jesus Christ, God come down. Uh, the whole point of the Christian faith is you need to trust him. The only way you can be saved for eternity with God in heaven is by him, by his death for you. It's about knowing him. It's about loving him. It's about him. So, no. No, you can't really. And yet, there is one sense which I think you probably can, in that... That's what I said. If you come along and join us on a Sunday and, and join in with the church family and see how we relate to one another and how we live, then hopefully you, you will observe there's something different. And actually how the church family relates to one another, you might think to yourself, this isn't normal. This isn't how everyone else does it. There is a genuine depth of concern. And so maybe there is something supernatural at work here. So in that sense, in the sense that Jesus uses, I guess, in, in John 13, uh, my command is this, people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. That's how people will know. And so in that sense, I, I guess you could not look at Jesus, but look at the people and, and that way come to know him. It's a slightly now, what do you think about that? Was that a sensible answer? Do you think that's a slightly risky answer to give? Yeah, come along and look at how we love one another, and you'll be absolutely persuaded by the quality of love in our church that Jesus is true. Was that slightly risky? Uh, maybe. But it is true. Oh, we get it wrong. Of course we do. Those of us who are regulars here, we know we make all sorts of mistakes. Many, many... But at times, we, we, we get it right as well. What do you think? Look, we're jumping into 1 Corinthians 13 uh, for the next few weeks. Now, in one sense, that's a slightly eccentric thing to do. But in the evening congregation, we, we worked through the whole book of 1 Corinthians. And, and in my head, we were going to do 1 Corinthians 13, slow down and spend six weeks or so in the evening. But somewhat eccentrically, we're doing it in the morning uh, because, well, we've been looking at one Kings for quite a while and we need a good bit of New Testament and they need some Old Testament narratives. So I've just flipped it all around. So that's why, if you're wondering, if you're wondering, that is a bit eccentric, but uh, that's why we're doing it. Now, the Corinthian church, if you know anything about it, were probably the most gifted church in the New Testament. Amazingly gifted amongst all the churches that Paul has planted. They're phenomenal. They, they're just so able, so talented, so many gifted people in the church. Uh, that's evident when you read through the letter. And yet, they've got all sorts of problems. So if you, you work your way through this book of 1 Corinthians, really the chapters are essentially chapters 1 to 4, you're so divisive, says Paul. 
you sort of set up one leader against another. There's all sorts of competition and, and division. That's no good. Chapters 5 to 7, your, your sexual behavior is all over the place. And you've got to sort that out. Chapters 8 to 10, you're, you're very selfish. I mean, if you trace it through, he's told them in chapter 3 that they're jealous, in chapter 4 that they're proud, in chapter 4 that they're arrogant, in chapter 5 that they're boastful, in chapter 6 they lack forgiveness, in chapter 8 they're completely puffed up, in chapter 10 they're self-seeking, in chapter 11 they humiliate others. So when he says to them in this chapter, love is patient, love is kind, the subtext is, and you are not. So uh, we need to bear that in mind when we come to this chapter. Now this section, chapters 12 to 14, is all about how the church are using their gifts, and particularly their spiritual gifts. Uh, And again, essentially, if you work your way through the three chapters, his point is, look, God gives gifts to his people to build up the church, not your ego. Gifts are given not for your own good, but to serve others. And yes, you've got all sorts of gifts, but you're not using them altruistically, you're using them selfishly. You're not using them for others, but for your own gain. And so into the middle of this argument that he's writing, or or, uh, the, the, the argument that he's making here, he inserts chapter 13, which is probably, possibly, the most beautiful chapter in the New Testament, you could argue. It's just so poetical, so lyrical. And we'll have it read, and we may even learn it off by heart. We're going to have it read for the next few weeks. It's a very beautiful chapter, but it is a searching one. I think hear me rightly. I don't think we should spend a few weeks in 1 Corinthians 13 because, well, Paul meant it as a rebuke, and we all need a good rebuke. It's not that. It's very encouraging, but it is a searching chapter as well. Now, chapter 13 works a bit like this. Uh, Today, we just look at the first three verses. Verses 1 to 3, the necessity of love. Uh, Then verses 4 to 7, that's where we'll slow down and look at the definition of love. Love is patient, love is kind, etc., etc. And then 8 to 13, we'll get to, which is the permanence of love. That's how the chapter works. But today, we're just in verses 1 to 3 of chapter 13, the necessity of love. And because I just don't really want to have to wait until next time to define love. Can I just say briefly, before we get into the text, I think I want to say that biblically, love is, it's a feeling in action. And I think in this chapter, you've got to hold on to both of those. The reason I say that is because I, I think in, when I became a Christian, the churches I grew up in, I was told many, many times, love is not a feeling. Love is not a feeling, I was told. Love is not a feeling, love is merely an action. And you mustn't be at the, the mercy, you mustn't be a slave to your feelings and emotions, you must master them. Well, there's some truth in that, but love is not a feeling in the Bible, it's only an action. But look, that just cannot be the case. You can't say that of the Bible. Because we are commanded to have certain emotions. So, to give, me, to give you some examples. Uh, in Romans chapter 12, verse 10, Paul will say, love one another with brotherly affection. I am commanding you to love one another in an emotional way. 
He doesn't say, love one another by carrying out practical tasks, because I'm sure that will follow, but love one another with affection, the way you love one of your siblings, rightly. The, the, uh, it's an effective command, an emotional command. Or you just look elsewhere, uh, Matthew 18, uh, Jesus will say, you need to forgive one another from the heart. It doesn't always start that way, but that's where you need to be getting to. Not just oh, begrudgingly, you need to actually believe it. It needs to be from the heart. Your emotions need to be involved. Or you could go many other places uh, in the New Testament where we'll be commanded to rejoice. Well, how can you command me to be joyful? It's a feeling. No, I'm commanding you. Paul will command us to give thanks. He'll command us to be mournful at times. And so biblically, yeah, love is a feeling, but the Bible insists we need to command our feelings. We're not slaves to our emotions, but they must be an expression of what we believe. Well, let me put it this way. A wife says to her distant, cold, aloof husband, I want you to love me. And he says, well, what do you mean? I, I, I work very hard and I buy you all sorts of jewelry. And at home I do washing up. And when you say it's my turn to look after the children, I look after the children. I do do loving things. And she says, yes, I'm grateful for those, but I want you to love me. Not just to do things, I want your affection. I want to know you care for me. There's a, I want the feeling as well as the actions, you see? So love is a feeling. It is an emotion, but it is one that's seen. And the emphasis, I guess, primarily in chapter 13 is on the activity. Love is about living and relating to other people in a way that values them, in a way that considers them more highly than we consider ourselves. So he would say very clearly here, in a church setting, love is not hidden. Love is manifested. Love is put on display. Love is demonstrated. In 1 Corinthians 13, love is not concerned with itself, but with others. I very much enjoyed, and you'll get lots of this over the next few weeks, uh, reading a series of sermons by Jonathan Edwards hundreds of years ago, really, writing on this chapter. He put it brilliantly, I think. What is it that makes the church like heaven? It is love. Let's, uh, let's take a bit of time then. Just three verses. Um, so how long can it take? Uh, but three verses of 1 Corinthians 13. We're going to say this. Without love, gifts make you nothing. Sacrifice gains you nothing. But Christ's love changes everything. Let's have a go. Uh, without love, then, gifts make you nothing. Let's pick it up just from verse 27, where Kate read from. Because he's pointing out that there are all sorts of gifts in the church. Now you're a body of Christ, verse 27, and each one of you is a part of it. God has placed in the church apostles, prophets, teachers, miracles, gifts of healing, of helping, of guidance, of different kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? No. Are all prophets? No. Are all teachers? No. Do all work miracles? No. Do all have gifts of healing? No. Do all speak in tongues? No. Do all interpret? No. Eagerly desire the greater gifts. Now, the Corinthian church is very gifted, but they're particularly concerned with this gift of tongues or languages. And in chapter 14, Paul will say, well, that's good. But it only serves you. Prophecy is better because it serves the whole church. 
But he ends this, or begins our section, end of chapter 12, by saying, anyway, enough of gifts. I want to show you the most excellent way. Gifts are very useful. But love is a way. It's a pattern. It's a road. It's a normal word for, you know, when Jesus walks along the way, it's that. It's a manner of life. Love is not a gift, it's the way. Now, what do you get in chapter 13? Uh, Verses 1 and 2, you get five gifts mentioned. Let me read it. Uh, Chapter 13, verse 1. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels that do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy, can fathom all mysteries and knowledge, if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. Nothing. Now, maybe these are not the gifts that we and I get, you and I get most excited about today, speaking the tongues of men or, or prophecy or fathering mysteries. You could amplify it for the ones that perhaps we get more excited about in a church uh, in uh, 21st century London. You could say, if I know all the main themes of the Bible but have not love, I am nothing. If I can tell you how the book of Romans fits together but have not love, I am nothing. If I can perform music in such a way to raise the emotional temperature but have not love, I am nothing. If I am prolific in the world of business and can make a million pounds but have not love, I am nothing. Oh. And note he, he doesn't say that the gifts count for nothing. He says, well, this the case, I, I'm nothing. You could be the most gifted person in this church. You could be the most gifted person on the planet, for all it matters, and think to yourself, well, I've done lots for the Lord. I've served the Lord in lots of different ways. And, and when I meet him, he will reward me greatly. But that isn't always the case. So you remember the, the, the end of the Sermon on the Mount? In Matthew 7, Jesus gives a warning. Many will say to me, Matthew 7, verse 22, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. But Lord Jesus, here I am and I've I've, I've done all sorts of things. I've led all sorts of uh, Bible studies. I've earned X and given away Y. You know, I've had all these useful conversations. I've done all sorts of activities at church. You know, I've washed up more plates than there are in the world, whatever it may be. I've done all these sort of things. But I don't know you. You're nothing without love. And we are meant to be shocked when we read that. We can have all sorts of gifts and do all sorts of things in church, and yet Jesus might say, you are nothing. We're meant to be shocked. In this divine mathematics, five gifts minus one way of love equals zero. Five minus one becomes zero, because it's the most important thing. You've got to have love. Now, that is unsettling. It's particularly unsettling for dare I say, a a fairly gifted bunch of people such as us. What about some of the details? So what's he saying? If I speak in the tongues of men, well, that seems to be just multiple languages, a a, a claim that you can 
explain the gospel in multiple, multiple languages, either supernatural, or you could be someone like Brian Mack in our church, who seems to me to speak a dozen languages fluently. It's just extraordinary. Um, but some people do have that sort of gift. Uh, I find him very intimidating. Um, but every verse seems to escalate. I could speak in the tongues of men, or of angels, whatever that means. I'm entirely sure. Oh, wow. That's quite something, isn't it? Yes, but if you don't have love, you're just a resounding gong or clanging cymbal. I did wonder about grabbing one of them, but it's too complicated to break in. Uh, the, uh, and uh, just spending a few minutes just hitting it. And if I did that, and particularly if I did it next to the microphone, you know, one bang, it's, oh, it's interesting. If someone just goes at it for two or three minutes, after a while, the majority of the room would be, hmm. and then walking out. Oh, I've had enough of that. You might think, some of us might claim to have the gift of the gab, to, to, to speak in all sorts of languages, but without love, do you know what, it's just really painful. Uh, Verse 2 seems to have an escalation to it as well. See if I have the gift of prophecy. Well, in the Bible, prophecy can be uh, one of three broad categories, I think, throughout the Bible. Prophecy can just be speaking poetically. That's sometimes uh, what it seems to be. It can be um, telling the future. It can be uh, applying scripture into a particular scenario. That's most of the Old Testament prophets are taking scripture and applying it to today. It It could be any of those three. I think in 1 Corinthians, it's probably a reference to the future. You can predict the future. Wow, that's good. If I have the gift of prophecy, if I can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, well, that's pretty special, isn't it? You are an infallible Wikipedia. That'd be pretty special. But in context here, I think it means even of the future as well. You know all things. Hey, you'd be, Mr. You, you know, you'd be everyone's phone a friend, wouldn't you? What should I do? Should I take this job? Yes. No. Uh, move here and you'll be a millionaire. Go there and um, you'll meet someone who'll be your best friend for life. You know, that'd be great knowledge, wouldn't it? Wow, what a gift. Prophecy, fathomable mysteries, or, or a faith that can move mountains. Well, that would be impressive. Every so often you get someone who claims that they're some sort of faith healer. I've never met anyone, actually, who says, I've got so much faith, I'm going to take Everest and plonk it down in Scotland. And uh, that'll boost the tourist trade and uh, their claims for independence even more. I've never met anyone who makes that sort of claim. But it's, just, it's not, the faith he's talking about here is not just normal Christian faith, trusting in Jesus, but uh, a sort of belief that God can do something extraordinary. A sort of faith that leads people. Okay, okay. But again, in all these things, without love... Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Now, one of the questions it raises for me is, okay, um, what, about, what about those, there are some very, very gifted people uh, in the church more widely that, that God uses to bring about extraordinary good, and, and yet are, then they're revealed to not have, to be completely unloving, to be without love. How does that work? Think of contemporary examples. For me, the, the, the painful, poignant one is uh, when I was a young Christian, the dominant Christian leader in, in this country really was Roy Clements. He was viewed as the star. 
He was the most, most loved conference speaker. He sold more books, Christian books, than anyone by, you know, he was the star. And everyone looked at him as, you know, we, John Stock got older. He was, he was the leader, really, of the country and evangelicals. And I went and heard him preach wherever I could and had read all his books and just was so helped by him, profoundly shaped in some ways by him. And then he left his wife and children and moved in with his lover and abandoned many of the truths that he'd taught for years. And I just remember thinking, how, 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 what? Now what do I do with all the things I've learned from him? All the things that have been so helpful to me, what do I do? And you say, well, God can do all sorts of things. God can still use gifted people, loveless gifted people to serve. But it doesn't do them any good. All that they've achieved in the lives of others, great. But they may be nothing. No, it's very tragic. Without love, gifts make you nothing. But do notice, Paul never knocks or denigrates the gifts. He would say, use them. Gifts are all good if they're used for others. There is enormous potential in all these gifts. If you speak in the tongues of men and of angels uh, and have love, brilliant, brilliant, that's good. Or um, I don't know if this works for you, you might think of it this way. So here's, uh, here's something with enormous potential. We've got my comedy check. Here's uh, got enormous potential to it. Imagine your name. Pay, whoever it is, Andy Knight, 10 million pounds, courtesy of a rich person. That would be a terrific name to have, wouldn't it, as a surname? Um, now, if you've given 10 million pounds, that, that has got enormous potential to do good. You can do all sorts of amazing things with 10 million pounds. But if you just remove the one, you've got nothing. All that potential goes. One little digit goes and 10 million becomes... Nothing. And that's what Paul is saying. Look, you're an extraordinarily gifted church. You can do, use your gifts for goodness sake, but do it with love. Otherwise, it comes to nothing. Without love, gifts make you nothing. Let's move on to verse 3, which I find even more, even more challenging or difficult. Verse 3, uh, let's put it this way. Without love, sacrifice gains you nothing. So verse 3, if I uh, give away all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Now that I think is even more surprising to us. We can kind of get that, that people are very gifted but selfish, but surely we think, I think, giving everything away to the poor, being willing to sacrifice your whole life, that is love, isn't it? I mean, in most cultures, giving away, whatever you call it, arms or giving away or tithing, whatever it is, to the poor, most cultures view that as a good thing. But without love, gains you nothing. I think, again, verse 3 has a sense of escalation to it. So I, I might give away all that I possess, or I might give away my life. Martyrdom for the sake of someone else, surely that's loving. And yet we know now in the 21st century, we see it on a regular basis. 
giving up your life is often not out of love. Martyrdom can be motivated by hate. We know that. You can be a suicide bomber in London. You can be a suicide bomber in New York. You can be a suicide shooter in Paris. That's not love. We know that. In one sense, that's easy to get our head around. Now, look, again, Paul is not criticizing either of these actions. Giving away everything to the poor, giving up your life. He's not, he does both of those things. That's how he lives. But he's saying without love. The, the tricky question for me, I think, in verse 3 is how... How can you give away all you possess without love? How does that? Because surely it is just a very loving thing to do. Well, I guess it can be a number of things. It can be from pride. So you get, you get the example, perhaps Luke 18, the Pharisee and the tax collector. He proudly boasts, I give away a 10% of everything I have. And it's not from love. It just makes him proud. Could be from pride, I guess you do it. Could sometimes be from guilt. You know, people knock on your front door. Could you give me money for charity? Oh, what charity is it? And, um, or come up to you in the street. Oh, and sometimes, you know, there's a sense of, of guilt. It's not really compassion or love that drives this. It's just, oh, if I give you some money, will you go away? Um, and sometimes it could be that, I guess. Sometimes generosity can be a form of selfishness. Sometimes I think of a wider member of my extended family who's addicted to gambling and it has ruined his life completely. About once a year he comes home to see his mother. She's delighted to have him home. And she allows him access to everything. Her bank account, he normally drains it. And then off he goes again on another cycle. But she's so desperate to have him at home, even for a week or two, that she'll do anything, give him anything. Now, this is a very harsh thing to say in one sense, but is that love? I don't know. I don't know. It's not really acting for his best interests. And sometimes that sort of codependency isn't love. You just need the other person sometimes. So you can see how this works Without love, gifts make you nothing. Sacrifice gains you nothing. See, Paul is he's digging pretty deep, isn't he? He, he? he certainly does get the scalpel out here to how we're thinking and what we're motivated by. So let me lastly say this. Look, Christ's love changes everything. We'll see, particularly in the uh, successive weeks, the love he's talking about is, it is in the heart It is an internal work by which God, by his spirit, has transformed you. It's internal. Gifts are not inherent to who we are. They're just decoration. But a heart which is genuinely loving is who we are. You might think it this way. You might have... Um, to be highly gifted is a bit like owning very expensive clothes or very expensive diamonds or a nice coat. They're all good things. I guess they're all nice things, but they don't change the person who wears them. And you might have extraordinary gifts. and That's good and that's useful, but it doesn't change you necessarily. In fact, sometimes you can be very gifted and it, it corrupts you. This is a work within the heart, a love that has changed the inner person. And this is not something we can whip up in our own hearts. It's supernatural. 
It is an expression of faith that comes through knowing Jesus Christ. Will you just turn on with me to uh, 1 John? 1 John chapter 4 on page 1227. How do we demonstrate this sort of love in how we use our gifts, in how we make our sacrifices, purifying our motives so it is genuinely for the good of others and not for our own aim or ambition? Uh, We'll bounce to 1 John a few times, I think, in this series. But let me just read 1 John 4. We'll just read a few verses. Uh, Verse 16 in the bottom corner. Let me pick it up from there. We know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us, so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment in this world. We are like Jesus. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear, because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. Verse 19, here's the key that we need to know. We love because he first loved us. This, the sort of pure love that Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 13, you can't produce it yourself. It is a work of God's grace. We will live this way, we will love this way, if we know that he has loved us. In Jesus Christ. That's what transforms Paul, the worst of sinners, the persecutor of Christians, the murderer of Christians, into one who can write 1 Corinthians 13. He is met by the Lord Jesus Christ and loved by him. And so the key to loving this way is to know that we are first loved. It is absolutely transforming. I, um, let me finish with this. I read this uh, a little while ago. It was an article in the newspaper uh, by a young woman, uh, 28 years old, uh, Jamie, her name is. Uh, she's writing of her experience of adoption. And uh, the, article, the article is titled, What Might Have Been. And so Jamie tells how she was adopted as an infant uh, before her first birthday, um, and then her she found out subsequently her birth mother died in a car crash when she was about three years old. But um, she just ran with adoption. She knew from her earliest memories that she was adopted and just ran with it. It didn't really affect her in, in any way. Just, that's who I am. Uh, it wasn't until she'd left university and in her early 20s, she thought, well, I wonder who my family is. I mean, it seems quite late, but at that stage, she, she went and looked at it. And uh, so she tracked down through Facebook her, her family that existed. She met her half-sister, I went to visit her in uh, a very poor part of a, a rundown town. It drives up and the house is decrepit and, and she meets her sister, who's an alcoholic. Her sister says, oh, half-sister, I've, I've been fired by every employer in this town. I can't get a job. All I do is sit here and drink. She learned about her mum from her half-sister, how her mother had been a drug addict all her life and had um, all sorts of issues She um, came back from that experience and only at that point did her adopted family give her a file full of court documents and and sort of adoption papers, info about her family. 
And so she read in, in the documents of the court, some sort of the disturbing news in one sense, a report of her mother. She read the report that Jamie's mother is dangerously inadequate as a guardian. She read of how her mum, you know, a few weeks after giving birth, went to a bar, a pub one night, and tried to give the baby away to anyone who'd take her. She was so in such a mess. She read all this. She read also all the court documents how her adopted family had resolutely sought to adopt her. She put this, she put it, let me just read you this of the article. Sprinkled throughout the court documents are reminders of my parents' determination through court delays, through complications, through the frustrations of the social workers saying, we're so sorry, we don't know why it's taking so long. I read of my parents' determination and dedication. I read of how their love for me was obvious to everyone from the start. I found myself smiling when I read a report that said, Jamie's present placement is wonderfully stable, safe, nurturing, warm, and provides her with a sense of permanency. The current foster carers are very much interested, indeed determined, if adoption of the child is freed. And she concludes, I'm glad they stuck it out. Their love has transformed the person who I am. I see that more clearly when I see what I might have been. She's not critical of her birth mother. She saw that she was all sorts of mental health and drug issues. But says, being shown this love took me from a fork in the road and radically transformed my whole life. We love because he first loved us. 1 Corinthians 13 is hard. It's hard to love in the way that Paul describes. But of course... When you read it, particularly when we get to verses 4 to 6, it is just a definition of who God is. You could read it this way. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4. Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind. Jesus does not envy. Jesus never boasted. Jesus was not proud. Jesus didn't dishonor others. Jesus is not self-seeking. He's not easily angered. He keeps no record of wrongs. He does not delight in evil. He rejoices with the truth. He always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. And when we know that love, that is the power to change who we are. It radically changes us from what might have been to what can be. We love because he first loved us. Let me lead us in prayer. Father, when we read the, 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 the standard of love that you expect, that you ask of your people, it's daunting to us. All of us can see that we fall short of the love that is commanded in 1 Corinthians 13. And yet, how wonderful that when we look and see you, and when we look and see the Lord Jesus Christ, we see a Savior who has loved us in precisely these ways. And so, Father, please, we would ask that knowing that love, would that transform us in a way that we can live 
and that our church family can be one which is demonstrated by love. Pray it in his name. Amen.